Hello, welcome back to CultureCast with Dr. Daniel Delamonte. I'm a philosophy professor in Philadelphia, and I am uh, going through uh, various ideas that I think are both interesting in themselves and also relevant to contemporary trends. You know, we, we are too superficial in the way we talk about our society and our world. You need to understand that the level of discourse we have is rooted in uh, deeper theoretical ideas. And we have people who are kind of just rooted in a certain camp talking past one another. They can't come to an agreement because they don't understand the full theoretical underpinnings of their ideas. They don't understand the full presuppositions of their worldview. All right? And so you have to really unpack the... Um, fundamental structure of the ideas that are being uh, debated about. Just as an aside, before I begin today's podcast, I've been thinking about the notion of freedom and how it can be um, differently interpreted. So some people see freedom as uh, the sovereignty of the individual, the ability of the individual to make their own choices independently of any kind of authoritarian interference, all right? But other people see freedom as uh, group-oriented so that the individual has to make sacrifices and to give up some of their freedom to maximize the freedom of the group. This comes up with the issue of uh, masks and vaccine mandates, this, this, this idea of just imposing these, these um, medical orders. Some people say, well, this interferes with individual Sovereignty and self-determination. It's the government coming in and dictating to you how you should live and what you should put into your body. Others are arguing that, that you need these restrictions to, to, become, to maximize the freedom of the group. So you can reduce sickness and have the ability to be comfortable and confident in your surroundings. This depends on certain uh, empirical assumptions that the masks and the vaccines actually work. Which is also a source of controversy. But you can see how there are these fundamentally different presuppositions that create uh, distinct echo chambers where people just cannot uh, form a consensus because they're just firing at each other from these reflexive positions that actually are informed by deeper worldviews that is rarely talked about. Okay? Because there is a point to the idea that to have full freedom, we have to restrict freedom. Like we have prisons to put away um, depraved people and protect society. So, you know, freedom depends upon restricting some freedom. It's not an absolute value, right? You can't just say, I want pure freedom because, uh, you know, maximizing freedom for everyone would, would, would undermine itself can't be an absolute value. But we're talking about uh, postmodernism. And this is, uh, like I said in the last podcast, a radicalization of the Enlightenment, okay? where the Enlightenment is setting aside uh, the authority of religion, it's using reason alone, human reason alone, to 
discern the structure of the universe and have scientific knowledge and through that tremendous progress and, and growth in industry and it really has formed the modern world but they at least were hanging on to the idea of objective knowledge. Okay, They at least were holding on to the idea that there could be um, universal and necessary laws of nature that we all have to agree to and that there's logic that structures our arguments and that uh, helps us to discern uh, good from bad arguments. Whereas the postmodernists are even more radical in that they not only have dispelled the authority of faith, but they've even dispelled the authority of reason, uh, where reason itself is just spinning different narratives, where we're all in our uh, linguistic communities with a certain um, worldview that is actually created by language. There is no objective order. Uh, man is the measure of all things. This is an idea from a sophist in the ancient world that you know our subjective perception, our subjective uh, view of things is what things are. We constitute reality. Reality is not something independent of us. Um, you know, we live in these linguistic, socially constructed communities. And apart from this, there is no intelligibility or order. We create significance. Okay? And if we create significance, then we can't say that our significance is superior to that of any other group. Uh, it's all constructed. It's not like there's some truth out there a property of things that we can point to and say, well, this is the truth about things. And your truth, your version of the truth, is actually a, a fallacy. So postmodernism modernism questions reason itself, and it questions truth itself. And we saw that happening with um, the idea of the death of God theology. Now, the formal uh, term for this is theothanatology. So Thanatos, those are Greek words uh, referring to the death of God. And what does this mean? It means there is, for instance, a questioning of proofs of God's existence. Uh, that you can use your reason to prove that God exists. We see in Kant uh, a critique of the idea that you can prove God exists through your reason, that, for instance, through the mere concept of God, uh, that God is the greatest, is that then which nothing greater can be conceived, uh, the greatest conceivable being, that therefore God necessarily exists because God would not be the greatest conceivable being without the attribute of existence. Well, Kant disputes that, uh, the, the concept of a necessary being itself does not guarantee that such a concept exists. All right, we don't know um, because a triangle necessarily has three sides and angles that add up to two right angles that it necessarily exists. Um, there may be a concept of a God that necessarily exists, but is this concept actually instantiated? So existence cannot be a predicate of a concept 
It's just a modal status. Does the thing exist or not? Right? Existence cannot be part of the definition of a thing. All right? It's going to be a predicate. So Kant says that 100 thalers, which is a currency, so $100 in thought is not different from $100 in reality. I mean, of course, you'd rather have the latter, right? But the point is that there's no difference in predicates. It's just a, it's just a matter of whether that concept is instantiated. Okay? So, uh, why has God died? Well, you have this turn away from transcendence. The idea that there's a God uh, overseen and beyond the physical world. That God is the origin of the world and so therefore is beyond it. Um, there's these modernist theologians who um, take biblical revelation and secularize it and make it imminent and not transcendent. So that, for instance, Jesus is only a man. Jesus is only basically a nice guy who um, helped others. Um, the idea that, you know, he is a divine being, he is fully God and fully man. Um, you know, this is part of the Death of God movement uh, to reject this idea. Uh, the old idea is that, the traditional idea, I should say, is that God needed to be fully human to actually pay the penalty um, for our sins. And he had to also be God because the cost of the sin required an infinite sacrifice. Uh, it was, you know, the only way to repair that damage is through the sacrifice of an infinite being. And so it's very theologically um, deep, um, this idea of the divinity and the humanity of Christ. However, in modernism, you get this turn towards imminence. Uh, the idea is not to um, adore Christ and to have these um, uh, transcendent notions of sacrifice. Uh, it's more about helping others, standing with the suffering. And you get things like liberation theology where um, religion is just basically turned completely towards politics and specifically Marxist revolutionary politics. Um, it's really a perversion. And you get uh, this happening with uh, liturgically where post-Vatican II in the, in the Pauline mass, the mass of Pope Paul VI, uh, there's a turn away from the idea of a mystical sacrifice where, you know, occurring on the altar, not a table, but the altar, is a, a sacrifice that is, is, is made present again. Uh, the, the, the one sacrifice of Christ on the cross is made present again, and people derive graces from that. You know, with all these changes of turning the priest towards the people and having the sign of peace, where people shake each other's hands and hold hands during the Our Father, um, all these changes are meant to make the service more imminent, not transcendent. All right, so, um, you know, this is the idea of pantheism, the idea that uh, all is God. So pan means all, theism, uh, of course, God, all is God. God is identical with 
nature. Uh, God is just this name we use for this universal entity of the natural world. Okay? So uh, we have also, you know, this, this, this has roots in Kant too with his um, religion within the limits of reason alone. Okay? This is a book that Kant wrote in which he maybe anticipates the death of God movement where the whole idea of religion is, is supposed to support the moral law. All right? Uh, and we have what he calls historical religions that emphasize a set of, of doctrines and, and a, a, a re- revelation. And this only divides us. What, what, what brings us together is the moral law that we can all perceive with our pure reason, pure meaning independent of our personal experience. And so um, we unite through the moral law and religion is supposed to support us in our pursuit of the moral law based on reason. So um, we can't really uh, obsess and try to defend these supernatural doctrines of the divinity of Christ, for instance. What Christ really is, is a, a moral exemplar meant to inspire us to follow the moral law. Whether or not he's divine or not does not really matter. Okay, so um, this is a um, turn away from the idea of a transcendent God. You get the idea, for instance, that God is merely an order, an order of being in which life takes on meaning. Okay, so it's like some kind of impersonal principle that allows us to have meaning. So it's just very vague. Uh, the idea of a, a personal creator God is is gone. Now it's just more of like a a body of ideals or some kind of self-transcendence that allows us to have a sense of meaning. Uh, by the way, you need to contrast the postmodernist critique of, of truth with, for instance, a Thomistic idea of, of objective um, moral laws. So the, the, the key idea in Aquinas, St. Thomas Aquinas, which is the origin of the, the adjective Thomistic. Uh, the key structure of law is eternal law, the natural law, and human law. Okay? So uh, these ideas are, first of all, eternal law, which is the law of God, the wisdom of God, guiding all of creation, um, the perfect wisdom of God, and then you have the natural law, which is the human being's participation in the eternal law through our reason. We can see with our reason uh, a moral structure in, in human life, uh, that there's things that we must not do, there's things that we must pursue and must honor. Um, and so these laws are stable and permanent and they apply no matter what epoch of history you are in. And human law must accord with these foundational elements. Um, and the key word there is foundationalism. Okay? The idea that there's a bedrock, a foundation of certainty. Okay? This would be the eternal law. Okay? In postmodernism, it's not foundationalist. There is no foundation. Everything is constructed. Everything is socially contingent and linguistically relative. All right.
And so what you have is uh, talk of God being mainly symbolic. There really is no objective uh, truth about God. It's more of a, a set of symbols a certain community will use to describe their life experience, their experience of some kind of vague religious sentiment. And to try to concretize this sentiment into some kind of, a, some kind of dogmatic formulation that everyone must, must agree to is just perverse because these dogmatic formulations are really just symbols. Um, they're symbols of our inner strivings for this ineffable uh, and uh, tran- sense of transcendence. Um, and if everything is a symbol of our inner striving, there's not really a literal truth, uh, you know, that Christ literally was divine, or we really have our first parents in two human beings, Adam and Eve. Uh, there's no literal truth, and it's all just a symbol for um, a, a personal uh, seeking. Then what happens is you get in, you, 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 it, le- it leads into a wide open ecumenism. All right, what is ecumenism? It's this idea that all religions are equal, that religions have to come together and to just set aside their differences and, and, and relativize their claims so that it doesn't really matter uh, whether you, you worship Allah or you worship um, the God of Abraham, Isaac, um, and uh, Mo- Moses, um, you know, or the Christian God of Jesus Christ doesn't really matter. It's just these are, these are just symbols that people use to express their again their their inner striving. There's no objective factuality to these things, and so there's just wide open ecumenism, which means that everyone is just kind of uh, singing kumbaya. Uh, and, and just relativizing their religious claims. Uh, one is just as good as another, okay? And then you have the idea that, you know, doubt is um, essential to faith. Uh, you know, you're not going to have any kind of dogmatic certainty about matters of faith. You really have to have doubt as a necessary accompaniment of... of uh, of your faith, you know, whereas before, um, doubt is frowned upon. We have these traditional dogmatic formulations that you are, con- you are bound in conscience to believe. And you think of the story of, like, of, of the Apostle Thomas, who was chided by Christ for demanding proof. Um, Blessed are they who have not seen and who have believed. Right, you, have, you, have, you have Christ regularly praising people who, who have faith, who are not uh, skeptical and, and um, like the, 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 Romans, the Roman centurion who hears about Christ and he's not a Jew, so he uh, is, is a pagan. Um, he doesn't have that training in religion to begin with. Uh, nevertheless, he says, um, Lord, I'm not worthy that you should enter under my roof. But don't say the word, and my soul shall be healed. Uh, and you have the power to command, just like I have the power to command my soldiers to do what I think is right. 
And so um, you have uh, this uh, faith that uh, the centurion shows that is praised. And but you know now in postmodernism, it's really wrong to have this strong sense of faith and to try to evangelize people into believing what you believe because it's just a symbol that um, a certain group has constructed to express their uh, subjective sentiments that may or may not have anything to do with reality. And, and really, if there's this idea of an objective, absolute reality that all our thoughts must conform to is set aside because uh, man is the measure of all things. Our ideas constitute reality. Okay? Um, reality is not independent of our ideas. I'm reading this book by Stanley Fish, who's a law professor, and he is advocating for this, this postmodernist perspective. Um, uh, let me just read a quote from him. This is his book, How to Win an Argument. And uh, he says, For in the absence of foundational truths, values, and ethical obligations, something must supply a simulacrum of the essences that elude our epistemological grasp. And that something is discourse, speech, rhetoric, argument, which is productive of the very categories by which the world and indeed the self are understood. So there's not these independent essences of things that serve as checks on our discourse because there's a, something really real out there. Essence is a concept from Aristotle that's actually very valuable to understand reality. It's something that is um, universal to a category. So if something is essential to um, a certain concept, it's in every instance of that concept. So um, lines are essentially defined by points. Uh, you can't have a line without points, whereas a line is not essentially um, the color blue because uh, you can have a line that's not blue. So the idea of objective essences is cast aside and instead they're created by language. All right. So one of the um, major spokespersons for this turn towards imminence in postmodernism is Nietzsche. And I want to go to a passage in this kind of weird and disturbing, but nevertheless very powerful book, um, Thus Spoke Zarathustra. Um, so you have this early scene where you have this weird kind of prophet, pro prophetic type figure, um, Zarathustra, who uh, is interacting with this other figure uh, known as the saint, okay? And so they're having this um, little exchange and you see the contrast between the two of them. And, and Zarathustra is kind of like an anti-saint that Nietzsche wants to introduce um, because what's he doing? He's no longer carrying ashes to the mountains, but fire to the valleys. Very poetic, very metaphorical. And the idea is that this Zarathustra figure is not carrying ashes to the mountains. That means that he's not taking this um, 
burnt up. Uh, he, he's rejecting the uh, asceticism of the saint, the saint who denies the uh, pleasures of the body, the pleasures of the earth, okay? The saint who forgoes the lifestyle of the rich and famous and the comfortable and instead gives it up so, so as to be open to God. So think of like uh, the virginity of the Holy Family. Joseph and Mary um, were, had a virginal marriage and uh, the idea is to be fully open and fully focused on God and to be fully united to God. And this is the a mindset of self-sacrifice and to be open to heavenly things that Zarathustra rejects because he's taking fire to the valleys. He's not taking the remnants of what has been burnt up as a sacrifice, but is taking his energy, his fire, down to the valleys, down to the imminent world of, of, of humans. And so um, Zarathustra loves man, not God. He proclaims that God is dead. God is no longer relevant. This is the death of God. This is the, really the origin of the death of God theology, where Nietzsche explicitly proclaims it in multiple works. But you can see it happening already in Kant. It's kind of, it, it's kind of gets going with the Enlightenment. And even if before that, you have um, the, uh, the Protestant Reformation. Even before that, you have the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve, where um, there is a kind of death of God because their goal in eating the forbidden fruit is to become like gods themselves, to, to, to humanize, to anthropomorphize God, to bring God down into the valleys. And so what is the meaning of life for Zarathustra? It is to generate the overman, the ubermensch. And I, and I can't help but see a connection between the, the ideas of Eichmann and the Nazis in general to evolve a master race and to eliminate the defective. Um, it's very sinister. Um, where you have uh, the overman is um, evolving beyond the human. And just like uh, humanity looks down on apes as a precursor, if you accept that we evolve from them, that you know, we're better than they are, the overman, the over, Obermensch in German, looks down on humans. And this is the meaning of the earth. That This is what Zarathustra, Zarathustra says. The meaning of the earth is the overman. So this is uh, a turn away from transcendence, where you're trying to uh, sanctify your soul to go to the next life. No, the earth gives us meaning and the meaning of the earth is to produce this master race, this ubermensch. You see it again in the notion of transhumanism, which is actually a political movement, and they have a political party, and they're putting forth candidates. Even in like Camden, New Jersey, I, I heard that there's a transhumanist candidate running for office. They, they're looking to go beyond uh, the human, to become post-human through technology, through integrating technology and um, the human body. So um, 
the, the word is wetware, to incorporate AI into software or hardware into wetware, okay? Um, and you have people actually doing this work. They're putting chips into their bodies, all right? So you have Nietzsche, and then um, the idea of absence becomes very important in postmodernism. The idea of absence. So previously, you had a metaphysics of presence. This is basically like a critique of all prior philosophy. Prior philosophy um, equates truth and being. Okay, so we're concerned with what is, what exists, uh, what is most fundamental. So this would be like a, a substance. A substance is what is not a property of something else. And it itself bears properties. What is most fundamental? What is um, permanently real? Think of like Plato, where the forms are permanent and eternal. This is the metaphysics of presence, where what is most true is what is most existing. Okay? So God is truth, and God is the most fundamental and um, living being there is because God is necessary. God is eternal. God does not um, come and go, is not contingent like a human being is. And also, um, in the, metaphys- the metaphysics of presence, we find the truth of language in being. All right? What makes our claims true? Well, it's some state of affairs in the world. It's the way the world is. It's being that makes our claims true. So um, truth and being are related. Okay? Now, in the metaphysics of absence, um, truth itself is created by language. There is no tie to being that makes the language true or false. Language creates truth. Language creates the categories, as Fish pointed out, by which we understand reality. Language is itself creative. It's kind of like creepy because the only word that is creative is that of God, right? God speaks and issues words that are, themselves are creative. God can think things into being, whereas the human being has to respect the order of things established by God, as I talked about with Aquinas, of the tripartite structure and the hierarchy of laws with the eternal law, the divine law, and the human law. Okay? Um, so, in the metaphysics of absence, there really is no um, objective structure of things. There's an absence that we fill with our ideas and our categories. All right? So, um, now, um, in, the, in the death of God theology, God is revealed through absence. Um, you know, presence depends upon absence. Okay? Um, so it's absence that is the centerpiece. Um, there is no objective dogmatic formulation. It's just a matter of symbols. Uh, there really is no transcendent God. It's just a matter of the moral law within you. Okay? 
uh, we're not talking about a transcendent God, we're talking about this order of being that is very vague and impersonal. We're talking about imminence and how God is identified with nature, not above and beyond nature. All right? And so absence becomes a centerpiece uh, in this great philosopher Heidegger, okay? Uh, in the phenomenon of anxiety. Um, this is a great idea, but it, it, it also is postmodernist in the way it um, suggests the hollowness in things. Um, it's the death of God, because when you feel anxious, um, this is a very philosophical and, and metaphysical, really it's epistemological and metaphysical idea, not just the, the idea of just feeling worried. It's, it's the idea that you realize that the meaning of things is completely contingent, okay? This is the idea that, that fish adopts, that informs fish, Stanley Fish, the law professor of this book I'm reading. The idea that there is no structure in things independent of our linguistic and ideational categories, all right, that we create meaning. So when I look out in the, on the, into the world, I'm looking at things that human beings have created. I see a building. Well, a building is a human concept, all right? That was created by humans. It's socially constructed. Your people say things like uh, racism or race is socially constructed. The idea that there really is no uh, biology of race. It's something that is generated by human ideas. Um, well, in Heidegger, anxiety reveals that meaning you know, the, the, the thing that, that drives you, that makes sense of your life, why are you living, what are you trying to accomplish, that's meaning, all right? Well, that's completely contingent, all right? There is no, uh, apart from the human community, there is no meaning. This is the, this is the metaphysics of absence, that once you get rid of the uh, human community, uh, there is no intelligibility or sense to be made of our lives, Okay? This is the idea that the world is absurd um, in itself, that we have to create some kind of structure where, okay, um, through community formation, we can impart a meaning to what, to what is in itself meaningless. All right, so, um, and what happens with death is that we become a thing. We no longer have a there. Uh, this is Heidegger's language. Uh, when you're living, you are there. Okay, uh, you, you locate yourself in a community of significance. Um, but when you die, you lose touch with this. You become a thing and you lose contact with the community of significance because you're just no longer conscious. And so um, this shows, again, that there's nothingness really at the core of our being, at the core of our lives. There is absence. Okay, and so this is theothanatology. Um, you know, after Auschwitz, after the cruelty of the Holocaust, people wondered if there really could be a God. Um, and so you have feminist theology that is attacking um, certain ideas of God, uh, trying to use she to refer to God. Um, you have liberation theology, as I mentioned, where uh, in Latin America in particular, you have this um, use of religion for the Marxist Revolution, so it's totally political. There's no more um, 
transcendence. And um, you know, and there's 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 more, uh, you know, a more metaphysical notions of pantheism, where um, God creates the world by a total self alienation. So God actually dies to create the world insofar as he enters time. Okay, God enters time and loses his eternity. He becomes part of the process. This is a, this is a you know, it's a very abstract theology where to create the world, God had to uh, enter time because in himself, there is no time in God. It's just everything is happening in the present. There's no, um, you know, part by part movement through time. Um, Kant says that we actually, as humans, we assimilate time, you know, in a, in a piecemeal fashion, right? We move through time moment by moment, not in a simultaneous whole. We don't see the whole of time all at once. Um, in fact, we liken it to a line. And we, again, a line also was constructed in a part to whole fashion. We don't see the line all at once. We have to construct it through different states of experience. And so, um, you know, you have this idea of pantheism where God has alienated himself from himself to, to um, enter the world of time and becoming. And there's a synthesis of the sacred and the profane. Um, so if, um, if God is all and all is God, then there is no evil. It's kind of a dangerous view if you think that, you know, all is God, and then evil is just not really, uh, it's a really a fiction that we create uh, because evil is just part of the ongoing becoming of God. Um, that evil is just part of the process of the unfolding of, of nature, which is um, the self-alienation of God and the unity of the sacred and the profane. All right? So um, the death of God theology is not just uh, oriented towards political change with respect to uh, p- feminism or uh, Marxism, although it is that for sure, but also it's a, a very abstract theology of, of, of like a process theology where um, uh, we no longer see God as transcendent and eternal, but as having entered time with us and becoming and evolving along with the natural world. All right? So I want to spend a lot of time on postmodernism because I think it's a, a key uh, theoretical framework. Uh, it, there's a lot of talk about it. People don't really understand it. Um, and it's paired with critical theory, which you know, affects us every day. We are affected by critical theory because critical theory uh, uh, undermines the dominant narrative. It tries to dissolve the, um, the traditional view of, of, of gender, of uh, the country, uh, the traditional um, uh, origin story of, of, of how a country was formed. Um, and so, you know, the, you have a critical race theory which says that 
um, instead of America being a uh, a beacon of hope and and uh, and uh, uh, a nurturer of human freedom, really is just totally infected by uh, white supremacy, and white supremacy is is at the root of you know the way people dress, um, the way people uh, hire, and the way people behave in um, uh, the workplace, um, the way people, you know, create laws. It's all rooted in white supremacy. Uh, that's critical theory. But then you have postmodernism, which is the, at, the, at the basis of it, a metaphysics, a metaphysics of absence, um, where there is no inherent meaning to things. We create it. Okay? And uh, this this way of thinking has a powerful um, effect of dissolving any kind of um, traditional bonds between people. Uh, and again, going back to my first point initially, um, ideas are driving history. Okay? Uh, you may never have heard of Heidegger and the idea of anxiety. Okay? But it's playing an important role in the background. All right, so until next time, until next week, um, thank you for listening. I will continue with this postmodernist uh, discussion, and I'll have uh, more aspects of it, uh, and I hope you come, you tune in again. Uh, and if you want to comment, I have an email address I'm willing to give you, and just um, dand325 at msn.com. It's D-A-N-D, as in dog, msn. I'm sorry, D-A-N-D, D-A-N-D, 325 at msn.com.